Amen. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you, Mary Thompson. Uh, what a beautiful, beautiful expression, a uh, beautiful example of how God gives us uh, passions, uh, dreams and visions and hopes and desires, and, and then he uh, leads us in how to act on those for, the, for his glory and for the good of his people. Uh, we're in the book of Acts this morning in chapter uh, 12. We're going to just be in the first five, five verses um, I, I've got to tell you, my, my, my soul is uh, just burdened and um, uh, just captured by the Lord as I, uh, as I consider the, uh, the evil of the last week uh, and the um, nauseating and insidious blend of racism pornography, dehumanization of people. Um, come, Lord Jesus. Now let's pray. Father, Father, in your time, you will send Jesus. Lord, there will be a second coming. Oh, Lord, until that day, I pray that you would use your people to spread forth your gospel, to build your kingdom upon this earth. Father, I pray that you'd put an end to the evil. Lord, put an end to it. Lord, would you rescue the hurting, the perishing, the oppressed, Father, I pray that you would use your church, that you would use us. Lord, you would open wide our eyes and our mouths and our arms. Lord, transform us as a people and as a church, as families and as individuals by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, as we open up this passage this morning, I pray that you'll do just that. Oh, Father, open wide our hearts. Lord, show us where there is unrighteousness. I know it's there. Father, chase it out. Purge us of the unrighteousness that is in our hearts. Father, I pray that even at this moment, that as this, this man would open your gospel and preach your word, I pray, Lord, that I would decrease and you would increase. Lord, that you would be known in this place and through me, that you'd be impressive. Father, not me, but you. For your glory and for the good of your people, you are all we need, Jesus. You're all we need. Lord, make yourself known now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's read in, Psalm, in uh, Acts chapter 12, and verse 1 to 5. About this time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's interesting that um, there's, there's so much power in these short five verses. There's the power of these, these different parties of Herod and the Jews. There's the, the power of their problem, their problem being the church and the gospel of Jesus. And there's so much power in the prayers that are offered up by the church. As I was uh, finishing this sermon up Thursday morning, uh, early Thursday morning in my, my home, and I'm contemplating the different powers that were at play here and at war with each other, and, and the power went out in my house. <laughs> and I, I quickly dialed on to you know, bgne.com to see if the power was out all over Maryland. Of course, it wasn't. It was just out, out in Pendennis Mount and all of the whole area, just out where I lived. And I thought, what is that about? Herod wanted to stamp out the power, the power that was threatening his kingdom. The Jews wanted out the power, the power that was threatening their kingdom. And so they gathered together in hopes that together they can make it happen. Why is it that Herod feared this church so very much that he laid violent hands on some? What is it that he feared about James, the apostle, the first apostle martyred, the big brother of John the apostle? What is it that he feared about James so much that he killed him with a sword? What could be so fearsome? What did he fear so much about Peter? That he's going to keep him in prison until after the, the, the period of the unleavened bread, until after the Passover, and then he was, going to, he was going to kill him also. He had taken the violent, or some of the, the, um, the, the church and laid violent hands on them and arrested them. He has Peter in prison. He's killed James. Uh, it looks like he's heading towards the head of the, uh, of the church at that time, which would have been Peter. He's thinking, if I can just kill Peter, then I can make it done and be done with this mess. You know, there was a military term for that. I think it still exists that you want to cut off the head of the snake. So if you cut off the head of the snake, everything's thrown into confusion and, and, and the whole thing dies. You ever cut off the head of a snake? I've cut off the head of more than one snake, not to be cruel, but because that big old rattler or that copperhead was wanted a piece of me and so you're going to kill the snake you just you know chop off its head shovels are good for that axes are great there, there was one time when we were in Lantigny outside of Lyon France we were living and there was a snake that kept getting at our baby birds and uh, we we cornered him one day by the wood pile I say we me cornered him one day by the wood pile uh, and I, I I dragged him out with a rake and I had him pinned down but I could not reach the axe and so I called my beloved Sandy <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could, if I could have put that on YouTube, I would be a zillionaire. And, and she finally comes and gets the axe 
And, and I said, just hit him right, right behind the head, and it'll be over. It'll be, it'll be good. He's killing the baby birds, right? Because they had a nest right outside the kitchen window. And so she takes the axe, and, you know, she's like this, and she's, she's got it. She's like, ah! And she throws the axe at the snake. This is before axe throwing was a sport. I said, no, and he just, he's, he's not going to hurt you. Just, just, just hit him right behind the head. So she gets the axe again. She's like, ah! And she jumps back about 10 feet. And, and of course, the snake's doing just fine by this time. They're probably laughing at her, thinking he's going to get away. Well, finally, we dispatch with a snake. Uh, and the, the snake's head is just still doing this. Because you can cut off the head, but that snake is still trying to bite. And if you pick up that, that head and you get bit by that snake, if it's a poisonous snake, there's still venom in there and it will kill you or, or make you very sick, depending on what kind of snake it is. Herod had to be wondering at this point if, if the snake was ever going to die. They'd killed Jesus, right? They had killed Stephen. And yet every time they, they killed somebody or persecuted somebody, this, this church just grew. He put Peter in prison and said, hey, don't, don't preach this stuff anymore. In chapter 5 of Acts, and Peter walks out of prison and goes straight to the temple square and begins to preach the gospel. This time he's thinking, I'm going to get them all. I've got some in prison. I've killed James. I'm going to kill Peter as soon as Passover is over. Well, he shouldn't have waited. There wasn't just one party at play here, though. There were two. You had, you had the one wild, uh, mean-spirited Herod. Herod was, um, Herod was as wild as they come. Uh, he was immoral to the max. Uh, he was a close friend of Caligula, the emperor of Rome. Uh, he, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. He was, as, he was as absolutely wild and immoral as a person could be. And he used his authority as the governor of that, that region to, to increase his wildness and to feed his wicked, evil appetites. Well, the church of Jesus Christ was getting in his way because it was, it was telling the people there's a better way, that Jesus is better. Lord, make my life complete. Jesus is better. So he's, he's arrested some, killed James, and is going to kill Peter. And, and here's the other party. The other party in the picture, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews, they were excited by this. They were, it says they were pleased by, yes, by this, this death of James. They had pleasure at this. And so Herod, seeing that the Jews are pleased with this killing of James, he's going to kill Peter too. If you remember the, the parable of the prodigal sons, uh, plural, from Luke chapter 15, you have one wild one and one legalistic one, right? One immoral one and one moral one, moralist and immoralist. You know, moral, moral is great. Being moral is great. But when it's moralism, when there's a worship of morality, that's different, okay? That's legalism. You had that one in the older prodigal son. Then you had the younger prodigal son. You had immoralism, a worship of immorality. And, and, and so you had that guy. So you've got those same two things at play here with the, the Jews on the legalism side and Herod on the licentious side of the immoralism. Licentious means license to sin, okay? It's just a, a great big theological word that you'll never use anywhere else in the rest of your life, except in church or, or in any group. 
So, but, but you can get it here, licentiousness and legalism. And you had both of those. But unlike the prodigal sons where you just had two individuals, here you had two, two parties, two people groups, two tribes, two camps. But these tribes and camps have come together. Uh, Sun Tzu in his book, The Art of War, uh, 5th century BC, said that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he's going to go get the enemy of his enemy and make a pact with him to kill that enemy. That's what he's done. Here's, here's looking at, at those that have been pleased by the death of Jesus, pleased by the arrest of Peter, pleased by the stoning of Stephen. They'd actually taken part in it. And he makes a pact with his, this common enemy, the Jews, and they, they're going to, together, they're going to be pleased together and get rid of the church of Jesus Christ as if the church of Jesus Christ could ever be stamped out. They banded together for that one reason, to stamp out the church of Jesus. Jerusalem and Rome were natural enemies of each other because one's preaching against this immorality from their legalism and the other's, you know, living against the legalism and throwing off any law and any morality at all to live in immorality. We have to, we have to be careful here. We have to be careful here. We need to, we need to understand that neither Herod nor the Pharisee is a is an enemy of Jesus Christ at this place, okay? Let's be careful. Sin is an enemy. Ephesians 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save those that are lost. John 3, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So the, the death of Jesus Christ is what is necessary in our faith in the, in the finished work of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what's necessary for our eternal life. And it is the same for Herod. Herod is just as much able to, if he's called by God, regenerated by God, he's just as much able to have eternal life in heaven through Jesus Christ as I am or anyone else in this room. We have Paul as a very clear example of that in this passage. Not in this passage, but in this book. A guy that had been about the business of killing Christians, dragging them off to prison to be persecuted, and God grabs a hold of him. We've seen other instances throughout history where God has grabbed hold of reprobates and evil men, men like John Newton, a guy that was a slave trader until God got a hold of him, and he became a, eventually a pastor and a writer of hymns, hymns such as Amazing Grace. So Herod is not my enemy. The Pharisees and Sadducees are not my enemy. My enemy is the principalities and powers. My enemy is Satan and his demons. We need to be careful that we do not put up walls against others and say, no, you cannot come to Christ no, I will not give you the gospel. My battle is not with an individual. My battle is different. Your battle is different. You and I have the privilege, the privilege of giving away the gospel of Jesus Christ and watching men, women, children, families, entire cultures transformed by that gospel. We have the privilege of doing that, of seeing those that are legalists and look great on the outside, but they're evil on the inside, and those that are the immoralists, the licentiousness, that look awful on the outside and awful on the inside. It's the same. The same gospel would bring both of those to Jesus Christ in eternal life. And there's none, 
There's none that are so despicably awful evil that Jesus Christ cannot save their soul. None. I'm a living expression of that. None. So are you. In a room this size, we know we know that all of those parties, both the legalists and licentiousness, are all in that place. We know that because I'm in this place, and in any given moment, I could be one of those or both of those, all at the same time. I, I love the end of Romans 7, when Paul cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death, this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Herod is not our enemy. The Pharisee, the Sadducee, they're not our enemy. Legalism, immoralism, licentiousness. That's different. The individual, just like this individual, just like those individuals, you and me, we need Jesus Christ. These parties that had gathered together, Herod, and the, the, the Jews that, that were pleased with his actions, they were really hoping that these killings would cause the Christians to lose heart and go away. But nothing could be further from the truth. The problem that they had was so much more powerful than death. What could be so powerful about the church and James and Peter that would threaten these parties so powerful that he would lay violent hands, not just to arrest them, but lay violent hands on them, that he would slice up one with a sword, that he would throw another one in prison and, and guard him with 16 Roman guards. You need 16 Roman guards to guard one fisherman apostle? Really? It's like taking 16 Marines to guard me. You might need, you might need half a Marine, maybe a fourth of a Marine, if, if that. Peter is not a threat in and of himself. What made Peter so powerful? What made Peter so powerful is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God Almighty. That made him a threat. My friends, so are you. He had no more of the Holy Spirit in him than those of you in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ. You have no less of the Holy Spirit in you than he did. None. Just as powerful as Peter was, even so, so are you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful force that exists anywhere, anytime. It is a power of God for the salvation of all men. Romans 1, 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of every man, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. That's what made them so powerful. It's the power of life over death, of holiness over sin, beauty over brokenness. It's the power of uh, dry bones coming to life in Ezekiel 37. It's the power of death being killed by life in 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is Where's your victory? It's gone. Eternal life is our reality. The church was so different from the world that it stood out in many ways. Let me give you three ways that, are, that I think are key and I want us to remember. One, it stood out because it loved. Jesus tells his disciples in John 17, they will know you are Christians by what? By your love. By your love. 
Jesus tells us in, in, in other places, listen, it's, it's, I'm paraphrasing here. It, it, it's easy to love those that are lovely, love your enemy. What is it that you love those that are like you, love your enemy? Love your neighbor, your neighbor that you don't like, your neighbor that's not like you. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. Love the one that's close to you, that's of a different race, that speaks a different language, that has a different worldview. Love, love, love. The one, first thing that stood out about the church is that they loved. Love those that were like them and love those that were not like them. Love those that were in Samaria, love those that were in Caesarea. They loved. Second thing that stood out about the church that made them so powerful in this place was because wherever the church engaged, individuals, families, and entire cultures were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later on in the book of Acts, we'll see the church extending into Ephesus. And when the church extends into Ephesus, there's such a revival, a, a, a great awakening in that place that, that riots form because the silversmiths are going broke. The silversmiths that would, bake, that would uh, make these idols, these little silver idols of the goddess of fertility, and they would sell them in the streets and in the temple places. So many people come to know Jesus Christ that the whole culture was impacted I remember when we started a church planting movement in Nkokonjeri, Uganda. We, we, we did it by planting a church, by doing some um, businesses, missions, kind of uh, uh, financial development stuff so that they could stand on their own two feet. Financially, we did it through the establishment of orphanages and a medical clinic, and, and God was doing some mighty things in that place. When we first went there, witch doctors were everywhere. They ruled the village. The village was a, a central village and then a lot of other little villages out in the, in the jungle of about 30,000 people. You know, three years later, we, we go back, we go back year after year, went, went back three years later and the whole village was changed. You couldn't find a, a witch doctor anywhere. There were a few in one little enclave, but they were gone. They had left before we got there. What you saw instead were people that were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, families and an entire culture. The gospel does that, friends, and that is, an, that is a threat to both the Pharisees and to Herod and Rome. Third thing that we see here that's a, that's a real struggle, we'll see it at the end of, of Acts chapter 12 when Herod, is actually, when Herod actually dies because of this. Ultimately, God, you see, is the one that's glorified above all others. That stands out in the church of Jesus. It's not about the glory of Peter or James or the apostles. It's not about the glory of any one individual. It's not about the glory of any man, woman, or child. It's not about the glory of a church. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. The glory given to God stands out because there's nowhere else. There's nowhere else, nowhere else in our world, in any culture, in any worldview, where God is the only one that is glorified. There's no other place. The church of Jesus Christ gives glory to God and God alone. That stands out because it strips away the glory of the Pharisee, the Sadducee. It strips away the glory of the self-righteous one. It strips away the glory of Herod, of, of the emperor, of Rome. It strips away all of the glories because there is only one that is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. These guys, James, Peter, the church were living that out. Listen, they weren't living it out perfectly. They weren't. Just read 1 Corinthians, you'll figure that out. They weren't. But 
but they were living it out. And they stood out like a sore thumb. In 1 Peter in chapter 4, Peter writes this. Let me start reading in verse 1. So therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, or since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They're surprised. So Herod and his guys are surprised when the church begins to grow and people begin to turn away from their captivity to sin by the grace of God. The gospel reveals the truth that sin promises so very much and delivers so very little. And in fact, ultimately destroys the gospel slaughters legalism with the the beautiful dew of of grace that covers you whereas legalism leaves you always wondering if you'll ever measure up and ever belong the gospel reveals that jesus has already measured up on your behalf and belongs with you and you belong with him to the uttermost and forever and nothing can take you away from that Both legalism and licentiousness come in shades of black to gray in our own minds. There is no gray, but that's the way we think of it. It's as if I'm I'm living over here in in immorality, licentiousness, and I think, okay, um, you know, this is a a little bad, a little rough. I'm I'm feeling the guilt over here. I'm going to move towards the rule keeping and and what I think Christianity is all about over this way. And so I step from 100%. Uh, licentiousness and immorality it's only 80 percent you know and think I've grabbed 20 percent of of rule keeping and holiness and legalism and so I've gone from just black to gray or it could be on the other side it could be over here in 100 percent legalism and I think okay I'm doing great I'm keeping all the laws surely God is pleased with me no he is not and so um, I think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relax a little bit, you know, and just get a little, more, uh, a little more casual, a little more easy to get along with. And I get rid of some of my legalism, and I take a 20% step back this way. And I think, okay, I'm only 80% rule keeper legalism, legalist, and, you know, 20% more, you know, in the immoral camp and, you know, loving the sin stuff. And so, but here's the thing. We think, oh, we've moved towards gray. We're no longer black, black. But my friends, it's all the same. Neither one of those are grabbing a hold of Jesus Christ. See, see, Jesus isn't, he is not some balance of legalism and licentiousness. He's not. He is someone altogether different. You can't come to Christ by, by blending your legalism and your, and, and your immorality and think, okay, somehow Jesus is going to be pleased with that if I have a balance of, of this. That's not what he calls you to. He calls you to something altogether different and altogether better. He calls you to Jesus. Jesus is better. If we try to put together some blend of any of that, it's just a different shade of self-righteousness or self-centeredness. It's not Jesus. Jesus is better. But that Jesus being better is a huge threat a huge threat to both the legalist and the licentious. 
we have some idea that we can take um, all of our different worldviews and, and we, can, um, we can cultivate our, our culture. We can take a little red Play-Doh and a, a little yellow Play-Doh and we think we blend it together and we're going to get uh, you know, some great color. We're going to get orange, right? And if you take um, you know, uh, blue and red, what do you get? You get purplish stuff. You know, Play-Doh doesn't work that way as well as you might think it does. But then you blend all of them together and what do you get? You just take all your different Play-Doh colors and you get some mismatch of, of, of brown and it won't fit back in the cups, so you throw it away. And you know, that's what we try to do with our different worldviews and it becomes some, uh, some blend of syncretism, some syncretism type worldview that um, syncs it all together and hopes Jesus comes out. And he doesn't. That's not what Jesus is and not who he is. He's somewhat altogether different. And he calls you to put all of that aside and worship him and him alone, to let him define our worldview. Let Jesus define our culture. That's why these guys were, were called followers of Jesus and followers of the way. That's why they pushed back against having to keep the feast of the Jews in order to be righteous. How did the people respond to this persecution to the violent arrest and to the murder of their beloved apostle James. Well, we know that, the, um, that some were celebrating. The church wasn't, but Rome was. We know the church was different. We've got we've to believe that there was a lot of mourning going on. James was the first apostle martyred. Uh, he was one of three that were part of that inner circle, John and James and Peter, that went with Jesus and spent time alone with Jesus in different ways than the others did. Uh, James would have been the older brother of, of John, the beloved apostle, the apostle Jesus loved. Um, I don't know where John was at that moment. Maybe he was on his face uh, before the Lord, blending his tears of pain and tears of faith. There was mourning, for sure. Where was Peter? Peter was asleep. Peter was asleep. I remember the first time I took my son John to an Auburn game. Uh, it's one of the loudest stadiums in the nation. Should be the loudest, but there's some reprobates in other stadiums that scream louder. John, we were playing, I think, Arkansas, and it was a very hot, hot day, and uh, you know, people were screaming for, you know, this touchdown and that play. And I, I look at my little uh, two-and-a-half-year-old, and he is asleep. <laughs> he has laid his head on his mommy's lap, and he's out of it. Some people can sleep through anything. Peter is asleep in the midst of this. He's chained on his right side to one Roman guard. He's chained on his left side to another Roman guard. There were two other Roman guards at the door of his cell, and they swapped out. There were four, four groups, and they swapped out so that none of them got tired. He's asleep in the middle of that, resting. You go over to First um, Peter 5, 6, and 7, and you see a bit of his heart in this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's humbled himself before the mighty hand of God. Lord, if you, want me to, if you want to take me home, take me home. You want to keep me here, 
keep me here. If I get killed with a sword, if I get hung on a cross, if I get stoned, Lord, I belong to you. He's cast all his anxieties on Jesus because he knows that the Lord cares for him. So Peter's asleep. Can you rest in those moments where the tension seems really high? Death might be at your door. Can we rest in Jesus at that moment? The church, the church itself was praying, praying. Mary, Queen of Scots, said, I, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. She feared the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. John Knox was the, the guy that said, give me Scotland or I die. Not give me Scotland for my conquest. Give me Scotland for the kingdom of God and I die or I die. He wanted it that bad. So Mary feared his prayers. The church was praying. How do you face the future without your leaders? Jesus is gone. Stephen is gone. James is gone. The church thinks Peter's going to be gone. And they're thinking, how are we going to face our future without our leaders? They did it by praying. James Montgomery Boyce notes in his commentary on this passage that they were praying to God. They were praying earnestly. They were praying specifically. And they were praying in community. They were praying to God. Not, um, not sending happy thoughts. I haven't figured out yet what that is. Every now and then I get an email or I'll see something on Facebook or, or, or Twitter or Instagram sending you thoughts. I don't know what to do with that. Can you turn those in like green stamps at the, you know, the store? And can you redeem? I don't, what do you do with happy thoughts? I want you happy, but I, you know, I, want, I want people to pray. So we don't, it's not about happy thoughts. It's not about praying to some unknown God. There's only one God that is omnipotent. Only one God that, that cares in this way. There's only one God that is defined as lovely, only one that is holy, only one that is wise, only one that is omnipotent and cares. So we pray to that God and to that God alone. They pray to God. They pray earnestly. To pray earnestly means, um, well, that all of you is involved in it. The other night, um, Friday night, my daughter Sarah locked her keys in her car. Um, and um, she was in Nashville, where she lives. She was downtown Nashville, and she had been to a Pilates class. She'd, she's a runner and a workout nut, and so she had run several miles, and she's going to go by Pilates on the way home. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I look at the door of a Pilates class, and I faint. So, but, <laughs> You know, she's, she's, she, you know, she's late for the class because she ran too long. So she closes her car door and then realizes that her keys are in the car. And it's nighttime. So she, she calls me and said, should I go to Pilates class or should I go and call somebody to unlock the car? <laughs> you know, and so she goes to Pilates class and she comes out and then she calls AAA. And they say, we'll be there in 60 minutes. And she, I'm on the phone with her the whole time. And 60 minutes later, they've still not shown up. It's 9 o'clock in Nashville at night. Uh, it's cold. She doesn't have a coat because it's in the car, um, right? She's in her running gear, and it's getting cold. It's getting colder quickly, and she is a single girl alone in downtown Nashville at dark, and this dad has been praying, but at this point, this dad's prayers take a new tone. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been just praying casually, but at this point, um, something clicked in me, and my whole body and soul engaged in the prayer earnestly and it was different it was just different 
75 minutes have gone by. It's about 9.15 there, 10.15 here. And I'm wondering if my little girl is going to be okay. And I'm praying earnestly for her. And she calls, Dad, Dad. Um, an off-duty police officer just showed up, Lieutenant Frazier, and he's going to stay here with me till the locksmith gets there. Like, Thank you, Jesus. God calls us to pray earnestly, and this is an example of what, of what happens with that in Romans or in Acts 12 as the church prays earnestly, and we'll see what happens in a few weeks. They prayed specifically for him. They prayed for Peter. God calls us to pray specifically. Everywhere we see examples. Yeah, there's, there's um, generalized prayers. Lord, search me and try me. See if there's any way or show me any unrighteous way in me from, from Psalms with King David. There's, there's general things like that. But there's specific prayers. My friend, there's nothing wrong and there's everything right about praying specifically. Well, how do you know if it's the will of God? Well, he'll straighten that out for you as you pray. He'll help you with that. And fourth, they prayed in, as a church. That's not to say that praying as individuals is wrong. Praying as individuals is great. But there's something powerful that happens when the church comes together and prays. We've been apart because of this pandemic for one year and a week. 53 weeks we've been apart. My friends, hopefully this pandemic is on the way out. I don't know if you were like me and you thought it was going to last six weeks or eight weeks. It lasted a bit longer. It's on the way out. Hopefully we'll begin to come back together um, even now, I encourage you to, to begin to think about how you can do that and pray more as the church. Prayer is where they found their resolve. It's where they, their weakness became strength and their fear became courage. It's where they, they began to practice the presence of God and began to hear and recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. My friends, the powers, the party that would come against you, that came against Peter and James and the church in Acts, those power, parties are powerful. The parties of, of licentiousness and Legalism of ultra-religion and ultra-immorality. Those parties are powerful, make no mistake. But the power of the gospel is greater because the power of the gospel is the power of God. That's where we find our faith. Father, I pray that you'd help us in this. Lord, in, in, that in, in these days and in our life, Lord, that we would depend on you. We would find our, 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 our place in you, Father. That our faith would be rested on you and you alone. Father, I pray that you would transform our, our hearts, that you would change our worldviews so that we have no other faith in anything else except you, that we give no other glory to anyone else except you. Lord, transform us by your grace. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has not yet met you, they're still on the outside looking in. Lord, I pray you'd change that even this morning. Lord, where there, where there are individuals in this place that are, that are living in legalism, where that is their nameplate. Father, I pray that you would transform that and they would let it go and they would live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, where we are captured by immorality, I pray, Lord, that you would show us that, that you indeed are better and that you would put aside that captivity for us, Lord, that you would heal us from that, free us from that, and that we would let it go. Father, that we would focus on you and we would live for you in you alone, for your glory alone, and for our good, for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us? It is well.